Our text is Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Aleph. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would bless this to our hearing, to our lives, to the plans we have for our lives in living uh, in more obedience to you, uh, with more heart towards you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We all know that the English alphabet has 26 letters, A, B, C, all the way to X, Y, Z. Psalm 119 works through the Hebrew alphabet, and the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. So each stanza of Psalm 119, each eight verses, pertains to a letter in the Hebrew alphabet, walking through it from beginning to end. So, there are eight lines, there are 22 letters, there are 176 verses, 176 sentences in that text. This makes it unique. Psalm 119 is unique in many regards. I've just given you two of them in that it has these eight stanzas each, and now each of the eight lines within each stanza begins with that Hebrew letter. So, not only does it pertain to it, every line begins with it. So each eight lines begin with each Hebrew letter as you work through it. We know, most all of you would know, Psalm 119 is the longest of the Psalms at 176 verses, and that also makes it, if you consider each Psalm a chapter, the longest chapter in the Bible. So I've given you four ways that Psalm 139, or Psalm 119 is unique the first time I read the Bible, read anything really in the Bible, I was already 19 years old. And I was on my way to becoming a believer. And when I became a believer, I loved the Gospels. I really found it difficult to read anything except the Gospels. It was like I was just in love with Jesus. And I loved every story that involved him. And then I saw that when you get past the Gospels, you pretty much get past Jesus, right? I mean, he's not talking much more. And that made me want to go back to the Gospels. So for weeks, all I would do is read the Gospels, and I'd highlight, highlight, highlight in my little New Testament. But then I started worshiping at a church that was preaching or teaching a Sunday, class, Sunday school class through the book of Acts. So I became familiar with that book, became familiar with who Paul was, I had been weeks a Christian, and I had no idea who Paul was. Then I went on, started reading the epistles. Uh, Proverbs was in my New Testament. I was reading Proverbs. And then I found there's this whole other testament that you have and started enjoying the Old Testament, Genesis, the narratives, love, Joshua, and Judges, still the kings. And 
Yet, what I never really developed an appetite for initially was psalms. I just guess I, I had written poetry just a few years earlier, but I had stopped doing that and I lost kind of interest in poetry. But I began finding wonderful psalms. 119 was not one of them. For many, many years, decades, I would say, I dreaded getting to Psalm 119. It was almost as bad as getting into the descriptions of the tabernacle in the latter part of Exodus. So I am here to confess that and thankfully admit that it is no longer the case. Um, my love for Psalm 119 has grown fairly quickly in recent weeks. The last time I read it a year ago, I thought, this is much more interesting than I'd ever remembered. I still didn't study it, and I would admit that as I came up to it this year in my reading, just a week or so ago, I was still a little dreading it. But then I read the first half, it broke it up over two days, and I loved it. But as I began studying it, I chose it for this, and this is really not just verses 1 through 8, this is kind of all of Psalm 119. As I began studying it and preparing for this study, it's no surprise that I would go to Spurgeon because Spurgeon wrote the book on the Psalms, The Treasury of David, and he had this to say about his sixth volume of writing The Treasury of David, which he finished in 1882. I have been all the longer over this portion of my task because I have been bewildered in the expanse of the 119th, which makes up the bulk of this volume. Its dimensions and its depth alike overcame me. It spread itself out before me like a vast rolling prairie to which I could see no end. And this alone created a feeling of dismay. Its expanse was unbroken by a bluff or headland, and hence it threatened a monotonous task. I was so pleased to read what Spurgeon had written, and this is after he's completed his study of it. But he had dreaded it, in a sense. And here he is writing this. Obviously, he's already read a lot of the Psalms. He's studied them up to this point, 119. And he had that to say about it. I was relieved. Now, he continues right after this. Those who have never studied it may pronounce it commonplace and complain of its repetitions. Many superficial readers have imagined that it harps upon one string and abounds in pious repetitions and redundancies. But this arises from the shallowness of the reader's own mind. And I would agree. I'd always felt that. I always thought, why have I no hunger for this? Other people love this psalm. Why do I not? He goes on. Those who have studied this divine hymn and carefully noted each line of it are amazed at the variety and profundity of the thought. Using only a few words, the writer has produced permutations and combinations of meaning which display his holy familiarity with his subject and the sanctified ingenuity of his mind. He never repeats himself, for if the same sentiment recurs, it is placed in a fresh connection and so exhibits another interesting shade of meaning. 
The more one studies it, the fresher it becomes. This is exactly how I have experienced Psalm 119. I have an analogy. In America, we have people of all races, religions, color skins, everything. It is, you know, very, very different. And so we can use skin color, hair color, and eye color as a way of differentiating between people. But go to Japan. Everybody has the same skin color. Everybody has the same hair color. Everybody has the same eye color. You've now lost these main crutches you've always used to explain how people are different. And so you have to go deeper. You have to go farther. And so that's what you do. Could be height, weight, their build, their facial features, their, their biometrics. Could be their voice, the way they walk, their personality. But you have to go deeper. And that's really what is true of Psalm 119 as well, I believe. Yes, he's, uh, and, and Spurgeon said it so well, using only a few words, the writer has produced permutations and combinations of meanings. So you have to take all of these 176 lines and then take the ones that appear to look so much alike and then look for the variations in them to really draw the benefit of this psalm out and that's why I titled the sermon as I did. And this is not just a tell, this is a show and tell. This is a kaleidoscope. Psalm 119, in my opinion, is David's kaleidoscope. Please look through it and pass it on. And if you have it at the end, you can just find me and give it back to me. And if you didn't get to see it, come on up here and I'll, show, I'll give it to you. But so a kaleidoscope is something that you look through and you spin the end and these set like maybe 20 little beads in there of different colors and shapes present all of these different patterns and some of them can be quite beautiful. That's a $7 kaleidoscope. They're not that beautiful. If I bought the $40 one, I'm sure it would wow you. But so I want to share some perspectives on Psalm 119. I preface this, these three quotes as asking you, ask yourself, is Psalm 119 helpful medicine or is it a glorious meal? How do you view Psalm 119? Do you view it as medicine? Something that should be good for me, but I really don't like. Or is it something that you can look forward to sitting down and enjoying, relishing? So this is Augustine of Hippo, lived in the fourth century. In proportion as this psalm seems more shallow, so much the more deep does it appear to me, so that I cannot show how deep it is. For in others, which are understood with difficulty, although the sense lies hid in obscurity, yet the obscurity itself appears. But in this, even this is the case, even, not even this is the case, since superficially it seems not to need an expositor, but only a reader and a listener. So what Augustine said is that the simplicity of Psalm 119 belies its sophistication. So you have to look past the patterns. You have to look past what you would find repetitious and monotonous. This is a man by the name of John Ruskin. He was kind of a, a, a Renaissance man that lived in 19th century England. He was an art critic, an economist. He was a variety of things. 
And he had this to say, it is strange that of all the pieces of the Bible which my mother taught me, that which cost me most to learn and which was to my child's mind most repulsive, the 119th Psalm, has now become the most precious to me in its overflowing and glorious passion of love for the law of God. His mother made him memorize a psalm a week. I hope she gave him more time on Psalm 119. This is a man by the name of Armand de Mestral. In order to be able to understand and to enjoy this remarkable psalm, and that we may not be repelled by its length and by its repetitions, we must have had, in some measure at least, the same experiences as its author, and like him, have learned to love and practice the sacred word. This psalm is a touchstone for the spiritual life of its readers. In other words, you will get out of it what you put into it. If you put your life's uh, interests and, it, and your life's experiences into attempting to have Psalm 119 help you, then you'll get a lot out of it. I had mentioned at the beginning Psalm 119 being unique in four ways. Your handout had asked you questions concerning those. There is another way. It consists of 176 verses, and yet there are only five of those lines that do not have a direct reference to God's Word. So God's Word appears in 171 of these 176 verses. Now, some will say that His Word appears in all but one, but when I examine them, I'm pretty critical, and I think that five don't count. These nine words are these. Law, testimonies, ways, precepts, statutes, commandments, judgments, word, and ordinances. So some of these can appear in singular or plural form. Before I introduce the sixth way, which is on your handout, I want to share something about Psalm 119 specifically, but also really about Psalms generally. There are three types of statements. When you go through all of the 176 lines you find in Psalm 119, you see three different types of statements. First, the most common, there is a statement of simple fact or truth. Let me give you an example of that. Verse 1, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. We have two simple statements there. Verse 4, you have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently, another simple statement. So you could go through all of this and highlight these simple statements. There are probably 200 or more of them. The next is a plea or what you could consider a prayer request. But what's interesting is that nearly all of these don't appear as a prayer request. It's more like a command. You, this person offering himself up to God and saying, God, do this, God, do that, mostly in his life. Verse 5, oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. So this is a plea. And I believe David wrote this. David is asking God, to direct his statute, direct his walk to keep his statutes. The latter part of verse 8, I will keep your statutes is a simple statement. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. That is a plea. That is a plea to God to remain with him. The fifth stanza, beginning at verse 33, 
has nine of these pleas. Let me read them. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Give me understanding. Make me walk in the path of your commandments. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away from my eyes from looking at worthless things. Revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant. Turn away my reproach which I dread. Revive me in your righteousness. In this stanza, David is pleading for the Lord to intervene in his life. Make changes in me. Change my reality. Change my circumstances. Get me back on track to serving you as I want to and as you want me to. The third, so first there's a statement of fact or truth, second is a plea or a prayer request. The third is a conditional statement. And so there is a, there is a condition given, and, there is, and then there is a consequence given if that condition is met. Let me read verse 7. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. So you see... They're reversed. When I learn of your righteous judgments, that's the condition, I will praise you with uprightness of heart. So that's the third type of statement. And then a fourth would be a mixture of these, especially the plea, where the plea is combined with a conditional statement. So please, I count 78. Conditional statements, I count 55. And I count 18 that are a mixture of these two that mix a plea with a condition. So... That's just a little background that as you're reading Psalm 119, as you're reading any psalm, keep in mind these three statements. What is it that you're reading? What is it that the writer is saying? The sixth difference, the way in which Psalm 119 is unique, and this one is not emphasized much in the commentaries. I only saw one that really mentioned it. When I pulled this into a program to count the word uh, occurrences, there are like 2,100 words in Psalm 119. The most common word by far is the word your, which is weird. You could probably take any other chapter of the Bible and not have your be the most popular word, the most common word in it. 211 occurrences. 10%, every 10th word in Psalm 176 is the word your on average. The only verses in which your does not occur is verses 1, 2, and 3, which is kind of a preamble, and then verses 115 and 121. What that means is this. David, the psalmist, is speaking directly to God in practically this whole psalm. And that's not typical. The psalms move around quite a bit in terms of who is uh, being spoken to. Let me, let me give you a practical illustration of this. If you would, turn to Psalm 93. Psalm 93 is fairly short. It's only five verses. And let me start reading it. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. No, your. He's not speaking to God. This is him speaking to just anyone who's reading this psalm. Verse 2, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. 
So in verses 2 and 3, he would appear to be speaking to God. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Verse 4, the Lord is on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. Again now, he's not speaking directly to the Lord, but of the Lord, to us. Verse 5, your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. So he begins speaking to us, then speaks to the Lord, comes back to us briefly, goes back to the Lord. The Psalms are often like this, and I don't know if you've been puzzled by this at times, but I would try to study a psalm and make sense of what's going on, and it's difficult. Also, it's further complicated by the fact that God himself will speak through the psalms, and he will take on the first person. So the writer now, the psalmist, is writing as if they're God. We know that the scriptures are inspired. We know that this is Christ's words. And yet it is odd when you suddenly switch into that in the middle of a, of a thought or a sentence. But that's the way psalms are written. So it can differ as to, to whom you're writing or even who is, is uh, speaking. Now, Psalm 119 is so challenging, I think, in terms of memorization that it is something that people that like to uh, set challenges for themselves or for their children um, memorize. And so Psalm 119 over the centuries has been memorized by people. Um, and you have a couple of people there, the Englishman I mentioned, David Livingstone memorized it at nine years old. He won a Bible for reciting it word perfect when he was nine years old to his Sunday school teacher. It was also memorized by William Wilberforce, the famous Englishman in Parliament who led to the abolition of slavery. He fought it tooth and nail for 20 years, and he would recite it unless he was with people, but he would recite it on the way as he's walking to Parliament. I read a book once a long time ago, and I still haven't rediscovered it in my library, but it was a book on the presidents, and it spoke of, in passing, their Christian influence. And several of our U.S. presidents had memorized Psalm 119 in their youth. I wish I remembered which ones or where I could find that book. You can't find this online. I've looked repeatedly. I can't find which presidents memorized Psalm 119 online, but it was in that book that I'd read. So that's Livingstone, Wilberforce, presidents. I want to give you a quote from a book I've referenced before, but it's been a few years. The title of the book is Evidence Not Seen. Anybody recognize the title of that book? It was written by a missionary over in Southeast Asia by the name of Darlene Rose, and she, was, she and her husband were missionaries there before World War II. The Japanese invaded and took her and her husband captive, as well as all the other missionaries, sent them to different prison camps. He ended up dying, and she had actually cared for him for like over a year, I think. She had to find out what prison camp he was at, take food to him. Even though she was in prison, she was in part free, a less stringent imprisonment. But eventually he passed away, and she was taken off to another prison. This is what she said. As a child and young person, I had had a driving compulsion to memorize the written word. In the cell, I was grateful now for those days in vacation Bible school when I had memorized many single verses, complete chapters, and psalms, as well as whole books of the Bible. In the years that followed, I reviewed the scriptures often. 
The Lord fed me with the living bread that had been stored against the day when a fresh supply of it was cut off. He brought daily comfort and encouragement, yes, and joy to my heart through the knowledge of the word. I had never needed the scriptures more than in these months on death row. But since so much of his word was there in my heart, it was not the punishment they'd anticipated when they took my Bible. So she has some wonderful stories in this book, and I've read some of them here in the past, but it's not a well-written book. She didn't have it ghost-written, and she herself wasn't a great writer, but I really encourage you to read it if you find it because she tells some amazing stories from the mission field. The last reference I want to give is made up, but it's from the book of Eli, if any of you have read or seen that movie starring Denzel Washington. And it came out years ago, at least 10 years ago, and in it, it's this post-apocalyptic America. It has a lot of violence, a lot of bad language. I don't recommend it for anybody. None of you watch it. But I watched it. And he travels across the country over a 20-year period with this book that he has heard that there is a library out in San Francisco that is collecting books. And this book had been eradicated in the pre-apocalyptic America. And it was a copy of the Bible. So, near the end of the movie, he loses his copy of the Bible. It's in Braille, and, and he loses it to this man that wants it because he views the Bible as this significantly powerful weapon through which he can control the masses that now exist across this desolate America. And yet, he arrives in San Francisco, and he recites the whole thing because for 20 years he's been walking across the country doing nothing but reading the Bible and killing a bunch of bad guys for our entertainment pleasure. And yet he arrives there and he's able to recite this whole Bible out. And now they have this copy of the King James Bible in this growing library. There are benefits to memorization. I don't know whether Darlene Rose memorized Psalm 119, but I really wouldn't be surprised if that wasn't one of the ones she did. I want to now talk about the eight verses in Psalm 119, uh, to some extent, not to a great extent, but verses 1 through 8. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. There are only three occurrences of the word blessed. We just read two of them. The third one occurs in verse 12. There is a double blessing right at the beginning of this psalm for us, God's children. There is a virtuous cycle being described here. Those that seek God will obey God, and those that obey God will seek God. So if you drop either one of those, you start tending then towards this non-virtuous aspect, and so you'll start declining in virtue. Verse 3 and 4, they also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. So see, here is where he starts speaking to God. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. There is only one of the verses where he deviates from speaking directly to God from this point through the end of the book, 176. And let me, let me share it with you. It's at, at verse 115, and this is what David says. 
Depart from me, you evildoers, for I will keep the commandments of my God. That's the only time David deviates from speaking directly to God, and it is to rebuke the evildoers who are obviously trying to draw him off of the path. There is also only one other verse that does not have the word your, and that is a little bit further on in verse 121. I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. So again, it's a plea on David's part to God, proclaiming his desire to remain true to him. Please help me deal with these oppressors. So now we go to verse 5. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. He has kind of a complex conditional here. He says, oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. That's a desire. That's a plea. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. So he is able to avoid shame if he can be directed by God to keep God's statutes. So he's asking God to keep him on the straight and narrow such that he will not lead into being shamed in any way and thus also likely shaming God, bringing shame upon God. So now at verse 7, I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. So he proclaims praise for God's judgments, and he ends by committing himself to obedience, but pleading with God to not forsake him. I want to talk about the beginning and the end of Psalm 119. I am only touching the tip of the Psalm 119 iceberg. And in a sense, you've heard the phrase, if you uh, feed a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. I'm not even teaching you how to fish. I'm just pointing out a really good fishing hole. That's, in my opinion, what I'm doing. And it's a fishing hole that I had no appreciation for even as long ago as a few weeks. But now I have great appreciation for this fishing hole. So the first and last verses which are addressed to God, so this is verse 4 and verse 176. Let me read them. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. So it begins with the words, you have commanded us. And then we go to the last verse, verse 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Do you see what's happened here? I have gone astray like a lost sheep, David says. Seek your servant. So he's pleading with God as the shepherd to come find him. I'm away from your path now, but he says, I do not forget your commandments. I know your commandments are true. I want to obey them. Please get me back on the trail. This is all of our prayers. It should be. Because, see, we know. We often know what it is that we ought to be doing. We want to do it. And yet we find ourselves being tempted and going astray, getting lost. And we want God to bring us back onto the path. 
we, I believe, we recognize we have a role in this. We're the ones that have taken ourselves off the path. But yet, we do at times require God to come get us, lift us up, throw us around his shoulders, and drag us back to the path. We, in our pride, think we must get onto the path ourselves. We got ourselves lost. It's my responsibility to find my way back. But God is there to help. He will help. He commits to help. That's what really Psalm 119, all these 176 verses emphasize, that God is there to help us. But we must value him and his word. Thus, David orients it all towards God. Your law, your commandments, your testimonies, your statutes. He values them highly. His last plea then is for God to save him, get him back onto the path. So our walk with God will falter at times. It's just that's the way life is. But God will strengthen us. He will draw us back to the path, but we must call out to him. It depends on us desiring God and valuing his word. And you will return to God more quickly if you have his word treasured in your heart, and by that I mean your mind. Have it memorized. Have portions of the Scripture memorized such that they're there to help you fight off temptation, to prevent you from falling off the path. Yes, your walk may falter, but as long as you're reading God's Word, as long as you're seeking Him, the obedience will come. You must admit your weakness. You must call out to Him for help. He promises us that He will find us and bring us back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your presence. It is your word that David commended in Psalm 119, but Lord, it was you. It was you to whom he was talking. And so we pray, Father, that we would value both your word and your presence with us, that we would rejoice in the fact that we have the Holy Spirit living within us ready and willing to point us down the path and to draw our attention to the fact that we at times find ourselves off of it. We thank you for your kindness, for your mercy, for your grace at work in our lives, and we ask you, Lord, to have this be a psalm that we all value, that we all treasure, that we all draw strength from. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.